0: Almighty God, you have spoken to us through your Son. Let your written word now be spoken and heard by each of us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand that we may not refuse your calling or ignore your voice. May we all be taught by you through your powerful word. Bring our every thought captive to obeying Christ to the glory of your holy name, amen, amen. Before there was GPS, there were cartographers. Well, there are still cartographers. There are still men and women who who give their lives to shaping the landscape in ways that we can read and find our way around. And when you get lost, you don't normally start with the cartographer, you start with the map reader, the one who's trying to make sense of the word. But if you've seen any of those old maps from days gone by, you know, when Columbus, the map that those world explorers were using, they don't kind of square perfectly with today's maps. And that is because we know more we see higher and further and clearer and we can check ourselves by what is in reality and not someone's perspective from where they sit or float in the case of a cartographer. But which map do we trust? do we trust uh, the map of days gone by or do we trust our GPS or, or is it wise to trust either one sometimes? We learn as we go what we can trust, what's accurate. And this question of what's accurate or what is adequate or what is sufficient for navigating around the globe or down the street is, is, a, is a perennial issue, and it's one that marked what was going on in what we call now the Reformation. You see, it was during that Reformation they weren't trying to find the new world necessarily, although they were, <laughs> but they were also trying to find the world to come. They were trying to figure out and discern where we are and how we get to the world to come. Or how to understand the kingdom of God from this world. How do we get there? What is it? What does it look like? And the puzzle that that people lived with then is a puzzle that we live with now because that's still a question. It's still a question about the world to come and the world in which we live. Today we're gonna take a little peek at what might be a mountain peak. It's not uh, too too much of a stretch to say that this passage from Romans that that we're gonna be in this morning is a mountain peak in the word of God. There's a reason Romans is considered a pinnacle. It's probably the fullest statement of Paul's theology. He may not have intended to be a complete statement. He is addressing issues in the life of the church in Rome and surrounding areas. But Romans, you see, is ultimately about how we look at the world. It's how we understand our own lives in that world. It is doctrinal. And that word by itself, that description scares many away who are afraid that Romans will be both dry and difficult. And it is difficult at times, no doubt. But think about what Romans teaches us. What human beings are really like and what they need and what God has done to provide a way of escape from our estrangement and mortality and the life that grows out of that. Ultimately, that's what the Reformation was stuck on. The world in which we live, who are humans, what is our predicament, and what is the way out? We've been pondering each of the five rallying cries um, of the Reformation here, and today we look at one more. Today we look at this notion of grace alone. When you come to this passage that we're in today, it's actually a hinge for the rest of the book of Romans. And so we step into it boldly. We step into it cautiously and carefully, trying to understand what the Apostle Paul lays in front of us as the hinge of the world in which we live. It's the hinge of the story. It's the hinge of the story that we gather around week after week, that God has broken in. We're gonna see things as we go through here. Paul, as he opens the book of Romans, we're not gonna open it at the beginning, but let me give you a little bit of the background to where we are today. As he opens his book, he writes about the gospel of God. That comes right out of the chute. He talks about the gospel that belongs to God. And then he unpacks it and for, for three chapters, he expresses the depth of our need. It's only when we recognize the depth of our need that, that we pay attention to what follows. You know, you, you go to the doctor because it's a checkup, and then when you find out once there that there's more going on than you had any notion, things change. When you recognize that this is not just the annual checkup, but there's something that needs attending to. And that's precisely what Paul does in these opening chapters of Romans to help us to see the depth of our need. And he does so in verses 22 in our passage, we'll look at verses 22 and 23 for a moment here, where we find the depth of our need. Where Paul says, all have sinned. That's what he's done for the first few chapters. He's, he's explained the depth that it's not just the irreligious people, it's the religious, that all have sinned. It's comprehensive. The word that he uses for sin is a word that talks about missing the mark. We've all missed the mark. We've all drawn the bow and shot and missed the target. We've all missed. And it doesn't matter how close you were, you've missed that is, that's the reality and that is the depth of it. We have missed the mark. But here's the question. In fact, this is the question for, for the postmodern world in which we live. What mark? <laughs> what mark? Who says there's a mark? And whose mark is it? And who gets to set the mark? I mean, isn't that the world in which we live today? Whose mark? And who sets it? Paul addresses that, as does all of Scripture, to help us to see something that we don't see until God opens our eyes to see this. And the people, friends of yours and family members of ours who ask the question, whose mark, who gets to set the mark, are yet to see that the problem is not how much or how little we have sinned and what is sin but against whom we have sinned. That's the issue. It's not how much, it's not how little, it's not how close. It's how we have sinned against whom. You see, in sinning against an infinite and holy God who doesn't come up for debate, he comes into the story. That is who he is. That's who we are. That's where the story begins and ends, with a holy and infinite God and in sinning against a holy and infinite God, our sin is infinite as a result. Francis Schaeffer unpacks this. He says, it's as though we come to the edge and before our feet is this chasm, uh, an infinite chasm before us. That's where we find ourselves in Romans chapter 3. We stand at the edge of a cliff and an infinite Chasm in front of us. And then the issue is what fills that chasm? How many finite buckets of righteousness does it take to fill up an infinite chasm of guilt? That is, if we had any buckets of righteousness. To begin with, how many does it take? That's the dilemma. That's the picture that comes at us. It's the depth of our need and it's the nature of the offense. It's that it's infinite and unsolvable. Is it hopeless? Well, it all depends on your ability to do something about it. But that's the rest of the story. (laughs) That's the rest of the depth of our need. It's not just the nature of our fence. It's the degree of our ability. I mean, think about it. The word that Paul uses is to fall short. And he says, all have sinned and fallen short. And that word means that there's a defect uh, in you and in me. There's a defective component that doesn't bring the ability that is required for this. He says, and falls short of what? The glory of God. He, a way of understanding that is that there's a glory lack in us. There's a lack of glory. We come to this chasm without an ability, without a capacity to do what the situation requires and it's true of all of us, and sometimes that's the hardest part. I have a friend who was a professor at the University of Virginia, and he said, you know, one of the hardest things about trying to minister at the University of Virginia, and this could be true of any any major university, is you walk around, and you see people who look like they have it all together. It appears as if they're on top of the world that there's not a need. These are, these are the brightest of the brightest. They're the strongest of the strong. <laughs> they, they can tackle and accomplish most anything. In fact, I remember graduating from another university once and thinking myself, thinking, you know, I could probably do just about anything I wanted to do. <laughs> How foolish was that? Uh, youthful pride and foolishness. Paul says we lack something, we lack the ability to do anything about this, it's true of all of us, there's no distinction. Is it hopeless? In the Reformation the debate was no, yes. It was hopeless from one point of view, it was hopeful on another, and it depended. It depended upon how seriously you take this story of the depth of our need, the nature of the offense, but ultimately, what do we bring to the table? When we come to the table, what do we bring? Do we bring a capacity? Do we bring an ability? Do we bring something to contribute to the need. Paul uh, starts this verse actually, uh, there's a huge transition when he goes from chapter 3, verse 20 into our text today, You, you actually noted it perhaps, we began a reading with the word but. And when you start a sentence there, you have to consider what's occurred. You see, here in verse 21, this is why I would call it a hinge. That what we have here, Paul says, but, and he introduces a hope where there was none. By the time you get to the end of, by by chapter 3, verse 20, you are hopeless. There's nothing (laughs) suggesting that there's a way out. And it's only when we get to that point when we realize that we're up against a wall. The walls have closed in and there's no door. And Paul says in verse 21, but, and he introduces a hope where there was none. Here we're seeing the fullness of God's provision, and that's what he unpacks. He he uses a phrase, the righteousness of God. He uses it a couple of times, and it could actually be translated a righteousness from God, because that's ultimately what it is. But in either case, a way to understand this phrase, the righteousness of God, is God's way of righteousness. Here's what has dawned and here's what has become new. And that's what he alludes to in the opening verses of Romans that we won't look at today. You can look back at it. But, but the same idea that the gospel of God has appeared. And he, in fact, he uses a word has been manifest or made known. There's a righteousness of God that has been made known. It's a verb tense that, that points back to something in the past, something has happened. And what is he pointing to? Well, you would know it. You would understand, if you understand Paul, that what Paul is pointing to in Romans 3 when he says, the gospel of God, the righteousness of God has been manifest. He's pointing to the historical death of Christ. That's what has occurred. He's pointing backwards to something in time. And he said, a righteousness from God has appeared. There's a continuity and a discontinuity to what has occurred. So what's going on? There's a continuity with what has transpired in the past. He says the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It's as if the Old Testament has anticipated this. It's what God has planned to do all along. In fact, you could make the case that the gospel could pre could and was preached from Old Testament texts left and right. It's not a new piece of information. It is but it has broken into time. That's what has occurred. It has broken into space and time in the finished work, the historical death of Christ and the consequences of it. That's the continuity of what Paul wants us to see. But there's also a discontinuity when he says it has come in and it is apart from the law. There's a righteousness of God that is without the law. And that's another way of translating that. It's a righteousness of God that comes to us apart from the law, without the law, and so what is it? It's through faith in Christ. Verse 22. It's apart from the law. It's without the law. Verse 22. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. We talked about that last week. Nate led us through that passage from Ephesians 2 last week where we looked at faith is the gift of God. It comes to us. And we understand it it is a gift and that it is knowledge and assent and trust. But that's, that's the way that this righteousness of God comes to us. It's through faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way in trying to help us understand what it is to have faith in Christ. And I would urge you to use this as something of a self-exam this morning, The man or woman or child who has faith is the one who no longer is looking at himself. No longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. No longer looking at himself for who he is and the, and the credentials that he owns. No longer looking to himself to provide what is needed. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. And he rests on that alone. And he rests on that alone. We sang earlier as we, well, we, as we opened the service. Our focus was set on the fact that there is a rest of God that we are to enter. And we enter it by faith. We enter it with our eyes on Christ, resting and laying aside the endeavors that we use to prop ourselves up, to make life work, to pres- make ourselves presentable to the one to whom we belong. You know, we do a lot of things to present ourselves Sometimes it's the clothes we pull out of the closet. Sometimes it's that one last look in the mirror. And sometimes it's just pretending that we're something that we're not. And the word of the gospel today, friends, if you don't hear anything else, and we could stop right now, is that setting our eyes on Christ, resting and trusting in him, is how the righteousness of God comes to us. That is God's way of righteousness. Because it is by faith that we take hold of that gift that is ours in Christ. We'll get to that in a moment. We take hold of it by faith. And that's the fullness of God's provision. It's a righteousness that he gives. He doesn't give us a fresh start, a clean slate. He gives us righteousness. He gives us everything that God requires. It is his righteousness given to us, received by faith. And we talk about that, don't we? About being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And you can begin to see why this is a hinge, not only for Romans, but for your life and mine. That's the depth of our need. That's the fullness of God's provision. But here is where we will spend our last few moments. And it's on the sufficiency of the gift. Because that is what this portion of the Reformation debate was about. The sufficiency of grace alone. You see it in verse 24, don't you? We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Grace, it's a word, we used it when we named our second daughter. It's a word that we are familiar with. We talk a lot about grace, but what is it? It's a key theological term for Paul. He uses that word to stress that all God does on our behalf is done freely and without compulsion. It's who God is. In fact, someone said, if the world had not fallen, we would not know that God was gracious. Think about that for a bit. If the world had not fallen, this is an aspect of the nature of God that we would not understand. But because of the fall, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we get a window into the very heart and character of God that compels and thrusts us toward him. I mean, it's, it's, it's the most attractive quality you could ever expect to find in someone. And that is, they've chosen to be something that is a great surprise and unexpected and lavishly moving toward us at every turn, the grace of God for us in Christ. It's God's very nature, it is his nature, to be free from any outside requirements about how he acts, Nothing we can do requires him to put us right with himself. Do you understand that? (laughs) That is at the heart of the Reformation debate and, and where we struggle to live this out in our own lives. There's nothing that we can do that would require God to put us right with himself. And here's the test. Is there anything that you could do or not do? Is there anything you could do now or stop doing tomorrow? that would cause God's love for you to increase, for God to love you more. And how you answer that question, how I answer that question, reflects and reveals the degree to which I get it, that we get what grace is. Because, friends, the answer is really simple. There's not a thing. There's not a thing you can do. There's not a thing you could add. Because as soon as you add something to it, guess what you have? Not grace. (laughs) You have not grace. That's what you have. You have have something anti-grace. If there's something that you can add to this gift, it's no longer the gift. You've bargained your way forward. You've negotiated and God says, friends, there's no negotiation. There's no bargaining. It's been done for you. And it is a gift freely giving. Add one ounce to anything and it's grace plus. It's not ours as a result of our conformity to any laws or moral code. It doesn't result, It's not a result of our working ourselves in any condition of surrender or humility or repentance. Those are required. But that's not what commends us. It's not the degree of your sincerity. It's not the depth of your repentance. It's not anything other than a gift received by Christ. But that does a number. <laughs> it does a number on your heart and mind. And we'll get to that too as we close here today. That was the Reformation debate. Is grace alone sufficient? You know, the church at the time said, oh, it's necessary. Grace is necessary, and grace is that boost that you need to do what you're inclined and would desire to do anyway. That's what grace is. It's a boost, a little bit like that morning coffee that some of us learn we function better with. That was a common understanding of the word grace. It was, a, it was necessary, but grace wasn't sufficient because you had to get to work you had to get to the office that that coffee gets you going and then you enter into the day's work and that had been smuggled in and seeped in and just slightly uh, incorporated in a the common view of how this works that grace is the boost that you need but Paul's language is stronger than that it's a gift and with that gift is all that is required because it's with that gift that comes redemption. That's the rest of the sentence. And you can't extract grace without reading what it, what it accomplishes. And that's how Paul concludes that verse, verse 24. The, the grace is a gift and it is the redemption that is ours in Christ. In fact, the word righteousness of God and justified, we didn't talk about this earlier, Same word. It's the same word translated two different ways. The righteousness of God is that we are justified, and it's by grace and by grace alone. Luther, who's our friend here, says, There's not a bridge from wrath to grace. What is required is a sovereign, unilateral act of God. And John Stott said, Grace is God-loving, God-stooping, God coming to the rescue, God giving himself generously in and through Jesus Christ. That's our hope, that grace is sufficient. To help with this for the few moments here, there's a critical distinction to to hang on to and understand. Luther said, it seems but a light matter to mingle law and gospel faith and works together, but it does more harm than a man's reason can conceive for it takes away Christ with all his benefits and overthrows the gospel. That's what was at stake. That's why we here today are pausing to reflect on grace alone because to smuggle in law and gospel, faith and works together does more harm than we might conceive. Because it takes away Christ with all his benefits. Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, the preface, says, Hey, there are two kinds of righteousness. I found this helpful, and I hope you will too. There's a passive righteousness for which we work nothing. It's apart from the law. It's not based on obedience. But a better word maybe than passive righteousness, because that sends the wrong signals, is it's a received righteousness. That's what we've been talking about. And how do we obtain it? It's without our deserving. It's without our walking. We'll never be able to attain it unless God himself, through the great gift of his son, gives us Jesus' perfect record and receives and gives us Jesus' perfect righteousness. It's a received righteousness by faith. There is also an act of righteousness. And this is where we sometimes get confused and throw the baby out with the bathwater in trying to understand this there is an active righteousness it's the obedience that comes from received righteousness hang with me for a moment here it's the obedience that comes from that received righteousness and i love the way luther helps us understand it he says now when i have this righteousness reigning in my heart This received righteousness reigning in my heart. I descend from heaven like rain. It descends from heaven like rain, making the earth fruitful. That is to say, I enter into a new kingdom and I do good works whenever and however I get the opportunity. Whoever is convicted that Christ is his only righteousness does not only do his work cheerfully, gladly, and well but also, if necessary, submits to all kinds of burdens and sufferings in this life with love because he knows that this is God's will and God is pleased by that obedience. There is a place for the obedience that belongs to the believer, the follower of Christ, but it's the obedience that comes from our lives like fruit comes from the earth when the rain descends. What does the earth do to make it rain? You see, that was the issue. Not a thing. <laughs> the earth receives what it comes to it. By faith, we receive the righteousness of Christ. And that does a number in our hearts, changing the, the, the inner workings of our hearts and wanting us, creating us a want to want the will of God. That's, we call it the transforming power of the gospel. On Galatians chapter 1, 3, this verse reads, Grace to you and peace. And, and Luther is trying to explain the difference between grace and peace. He said, grace releases sin and peace makes the conscience quiet. And they go together. <laughs> the, two, the two fiends that torment us are sin and conscience. But Christ has vanquished, vanquished these two monsters and trod them underfoot in this world and that which is to come. And he talks about how I I, how I I lose sight of the gospel. This was Luther talking. I know how often I suddenly lose the beams of the gospel and grace as being shadowed for me with thick and dark clouds. I know in what a slippery place even such also do stand as we are well exercised and seem to have a sure footing in matters of faith. It's a slippery place area in which we place our feet. We lose sight of the gospel readily. And here's how I know it. Because I, with you, struggle to rest in the finished work of Christ. There's aspects that come along and say, yes, it's grace, but it's grace plus what? What do I add to this? And here's the beauty of the story. With a passage like this, we have not merely a map that shows us the bridge from this world to the world to come. In Christ, we have more than a map. We have one who takes us there. He takes us from where we are to where we are in his presence, into the kingdom of God, clothed in his righteousness, with a seat at the table. It's grace alone, received by faith, and with it the redemption for which our heart longs. Rest, friends. the active and passive righteousness the obedience that comes the righteousness is ours rest in the finished work of Christ and understand that he is at work and when he works he doesn't work halfway his grace alone a gift received by faith father that is a story that captures our imagination one that we can delight in as we come to see more and more the fullness of your love for us in Christ that you have done for us what we could not do and that chasm that infinite chasm of guilt that is ours and before us is one that you have conquered that you give us the righteousness of Christ by faith. And there's not anything that we add to that. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.